Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author, media and PR coach, copywriter, editor and proofreader and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content, events and training platform providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview Susan Cuscaden, a natural food and products consultant in Denver, Colorado. For decades, Susan has been identifying innovations and categories ahead of trend while creating demand and effective streams of commerce for numerous companies in the natural and organic industries. Over the past 35 years, Susan has been instrumental in advancing many consumer products and new concepts. This included spearheading consumer acceptance of Tetra Pak in North America in 1985, which resulted in top sales of products packaged in what was a category disruptor at that time. Susan draws on her unique childhood in the untouched environment of the bayous of Louisiana, as well as living and working in the Caribbean, Central and South America, Europe and the Middle East to manifest successful, disruptive new concepts and products. Her focus is to identify and create trends and demand for conscious concepts and products while making them viable and successful in today's marketplace. In this interview, Susan talks about the minimum amount of money a brand needs to get national distribution across the US and do it successfully over a couple of years, the hidden costs involved in distribution that are little known and can destroy a product manufacturer, the difference between distributors in the US and distributors in other countries, the most important thing a retailer looks for when considering taking on a product, a key person a food product manufacturer needs to hire when scaling up and why, the risks of creating Me Too type products, particularly if you want to get them into large retailers, a little known and potentially lucrative strategy to get your products into retailers without shouldering the stress or financial costs of marketing and the one thing you need to be able to take advantage of this tactic and much more. Here's the interview with Susan Cuscaden. Hello, Susan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm really excited about this. I am too. I'm, I'm really happy that you've agreed to come on the show because you've been involved in the, the natural foods and product space for I think it's nearly 40 years now. It's a, a long, long time. So you've obviously got a, a wealth of experience. Why don't we start off with um, you tell us how you got into it and why? Well, what's interesting is I grew up in um, a very pristine environment in South Louisiana, and at the time it was just environmentally pristine, so uh, it was easy to live off the land, and vegetables were huge, um, part of that whole culture. And, uh, and so I grew up in a home that really was already into natural and health food and being healthy. So it wasn't unusual for us to have regimes, even as children, um, having to do apple cider vinegar and honey, you know, for a month. 
And so, and so it was natural that when I was about 18, I learned about macrobiotics, which is really the precursor to all natural foods around the world as it is now. And that was um, coming out of traditional Japanese food, uh, but eating a non-processed, no processed food at all diet. And I became a, a teacher. So that's why it can be 40 years and I'm not 100 years old because, <laughs> because I just want to make, I, I wanted to make that real clear <laughs> because people say, Oh, come on, Susan, you know, 40 years, but I was doing things, you know, when I was really young. And so I became a macrobiotic teacher and this is when there were no real products except, um, you know, tamari and miso and brown rice that you had to go and really you had to go and find farmers with brown rice. Um, and now look at now look at our beautiful markets and our beautiful yeah. grocery stores. So what I thought at eighteen, nineteen, and twenty would be, oh, this is the way it will be next year. It has taken all these thirty-five. <laughs> 40 years for me to actually see it manifested. So life is funny that way. Things take a long time, I think. They do, they do. And it's fantastic that you're able to, to see it happen, um, mm-hmm. you know, in your lifetime. I think sometimes with social justice issues, for example, you know, it can be uh, frustrating that it takes so long. Oh. And it's, it's always nice when you're in the moment and you can actually be part of something and experience it. So right. that's fantastic. So, Susan, you've got a lot of experience. What you do, I mean, you basically partner with and work with brands to launch their products to market. And, and as we mentioned, you've had a lot of experience in doing this with with many different companies. So can we talk about some of the challenges involved in launching a product to market? And when we're talking about this, we're talking, I guess, on a big scale. So people that want to, you know, get their products into retailers nationally, say across the US, even uh, internationally. Can you tell us about what some of the challenges are and perhaps give us a little bit of a reality check on what's required for a successful launch, particularly into the North American market? Okay. Yes, I am a consultant. I do product launches. I'm well known for for product launch, uh, the product launch arena. And um, my gift is being able to do that by hook and crook guerrilla marketing. Because even if somebody starts out with what they believe is a good amount of money to launch something, there, there are so much needs. There's so many ways that money can be drained. And so the first thing I tell anybody who calls me to ask me, you know, what they should do or what they should redo, because I do a lot of relaunches after people have, you know, found out that things didn't work out quite the way they thought, is that um, you want to make sure that you really have enough money to do something. So just because somebody has a good idea and it's a good product and it's a it's a fantastic tasting product or something like that, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it because as in everything, there's a back and front to everything. It's a hard business. The food business is a difficult business. If the food is um, bars and that kind of thing, um, that's one thing. 
If it's refrigerated, that's another thing. If it's frozen, that's another thing. If it's canned or um, shelf-stable, that's another thing. So you really need the market intelligence for your category. And um, I would say the first thing you need to do is consider your costs. So I've seen, it's actually tragic, but, you know, the natural food um, trade shows in North America and in, in the U.S. are huge. They're the, some of the biggest in the world. Yeah. But you'll see so many people with a product that is absolutely fantastic, but the cost is too high. They don't know this when they launch it, but when you look at your margins, when you look at what you're going to need to make on every piece, on every product you sell, to be able to afford marketing, every aspect of marketing, advertising, social media, um, more product development, um, tweaking the product development, you know, that's where, that's where people can go awry. And so I ask if they know what their costs are, are they really going to make enough profit when they put in everything, everything into the cost package? So how many people do they have to have on staff? Can they get away with contract um, labor for how long? How much money are they planning to spend in advertising and PR and social media and and all of that, and do they have the market intelligence to pull it up, pull it off? And I'm not trying. When to you say when you say market intelligence, Susan, what do you do? You mean like the market research, like having re, sort of researched the product, or do you mean something else? I mean researching the competition, researching the category, but finding the wisest people in that category in the industry to be able to react to. And react uh, partner partner with in some fashion, so that you're getting the real story, and that would have to come with people years and years in the industry. Got it. And when you do that, then you have the real hidden costs at a distributor. Distributors have in North America have huge hidden costs that they're not going to tell you up front when they agree to bring on your product. Um, Can you give us an example of one or two of the hidden costs? Um, manufacturers' chargebacks, um, discounts that they have with their preferred retailers, all that's going to be charged uh-huh. back to you. And if you don't know that or if you don't have a protocol to deal with it, it can kill you. Right, right. So these are all things that um, are not readily known. And, um, but it's prudent. It's very prudent. And it gives one the best chance for success if they really, really, really delve deeply before they go very far. I'd say one of the other things to do right away is to get a food scientist. Um, because what you make in the kitchen and what your contract manufacturer makes for you in a small batch may not be scaled up correctly without a food scientist on board Um, because it's not just it you know you know multiplying the recipe by 10 it doesn't go that way and uh, 
you know, changing the, for instance, changing the sodium content to fit within the realm of a product that may not taste as good as good as it did in the kitchen, but you can't put such a high sodium content on a package. Well, sometimes that means that the person eating it at home never thought about adding salt. And then your complaint is the product doesn't taste good. Okay. Not everybody's a chef. Not everybody's a cook and knows the uh, ins and outs of acid to sweetness to salt content to what to make, what to put in something to bring out more flavor, what, what unusual spices or herbs you could put in to mimic sodium. You know, this, this is all a science. Mm, it's very different, isn't it, from someone sort of home making their stuff and selling it, say, at the local markets um, to yeah. actually doing it on a big scale like this. This is yeah. really, this is great stuff. This is fascinating um, and, and very, very helpful. Um, so, so, for instance, something you make at home and you sell at your local market might just be fine. You might have enough profit in it and everything else. When you try to bring that up to a regional level, one of those ingredients could be cost prohibitive for you. What are you uh. going to do to keep that that um, keep you different than everybody else, so that you're not just competing with the same product and being able to replace that ingredient with something affordable? That's yeah. not that's not something that's usually in our heads, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. This is really great stuff. I think a lot of people don't realize that. They they just think, like you said, it's like, oh, okay, it's just like making what I do in my kitchen, except, you know, a 100 or a 1,000 times over. But it, it's obviously not. And I'm guessing there's a lot of um, requirements as well, like, you know, legal aspects to um, food safety, that kind of thing as well, which I, why I guess you mentioned like the food scientist. Correct. And if you're selling in the U.S., the FDA has got much, much stricter about uh, everything. There's new food labeling laws. They've just changed the nutritional labeling panel, and those law those regulations are called called FSMA, F S M A. And so the nutritional panels of last year are not this year's nutritional panels. Uh-huh. Then, if you're trying to import into the U.S. Um, this year, you will have to have that label. Uh, according to the FSMA regulations, or you will just be turned away. Wow. Yeah, there's just so many things to think about. There certainly is, gosh. So in terms of, let's go back to talk about you, because you, as I say, you partner and work with consultants. So what do you look for? Like, Because as you say, people come to you nowadays. You're so well known in this industry. People come to you and say, hey, Susan, I've got this product. I'd love to work with you or I'd love you to help me. What do you look for in a potential client or in a brand before taking them on? I'm going to be really honest with you. I, I can usually discern if they're teachable or not. If they haven't been in the food business at all and they're teachable, that's exciting. That's going to move us ahead. I'm an accelerator. So 
you what most companies do is they spend seven years making seven to eight years making mistakes. So they go from A, B, C, D, and have to go all the way back to A, and they've lost all that time and money. Hmm. And so I'm looking for somebody who is willing to really be um, teachable and want to accelerate and see the vision for acceleration. Because if they feel that they know everything, that, I mean, I'm just being frank, that usually becomes a problem because then it, you know, it, it becomes this situation where we're struggling with each other. Right. Um, and then, and then it's hurtful to them, mostly, uh, in that they realize a few years down the line that they've lost money and that they shouldn't have gotten into the business. And so I'm very straight with people from the beginning and that's why I do evaluate who I work with. Um, because I don't, I want to move people ahead quickly and successfully. I don't want to see anyone hurt or lose money. It, cool. it tears tears me up. All my consultants friends feel the same way. Got it. So that's great. So that's cool. That's really good to know that people are, are open to be teachable. Because, like you say, if they think they knew everything, they um, obviously didn't. Because then they wouldn't have gotten into those mistakes. So I guess they're coming to you if they've already started out. Then right. yeah, you're looking for them to be teachable and coachable. So what else do you look for in terms of their product or their finances or their branding or anything like that? Well, I look to see where they are on their branding. If it's a Me Too product. Uh, just another cookie or chip, that's really hard. The competition is really tough. And there are large companies who can offer stores and distributors huge discounts um, at a time to stay on the shelf and be on the shelf and have a lot of shelf space. So I look for something that's unique, that has enough profit built into it, and uh, that the owners know that it's going to take some money in order to be competitive and to push the brand forward. Then I look for how sophisticated the branding is. If the uh, if there's no real branding for the product itself and it, it seems generic, that's going to be hard because the trend is that consumers want to buy from... Um, companies that they have a find a resonance with okay they want yeah. to know the company they want to know what the background is they want to know that this is somebody they can relate to okay if they can relate to the company then you really have a head start got it so susan do you when you say okay if you look at their branding and it's not quite up to par so when should someone approach you like do you like to work with someone right from the very beginning where they've literally just kind of got their product or do you prefer them to have already done a certain amount of sales or branding or marketing the truth is that i prefer to start out with somebody new because then because of social media and because of the web it's difficult, it's more difficult the longer somebody's been in business and maybe didn't do things quite um, sophisticated in a sophisticated way or maybe didn't know the 
the margins and how much it would take and that kind of thing. It's harder to fix than it is to create. Got it. Yeah. And to create with them. So a good a good marketer is going to be able to pull more of a story out of an owner than was there. It's I like to say it this way. We can't write our own eulogies. It wouldn't come off right. And yeah. what, what we know <laughs> ourselves is not at all what people saw us as. It's too different. That's so true. Yeah, that's very true. And so a really good product launcher is going to be able to see more of the story and be able to put that story in the context not of only today's world, but what trends are coming and what trends you want to develop, what demand you can actually create. You can you can move a market if you have the right branding and the right savvy to do that in an economical way. Sure, you can spend millions doing it. Doesn't mean you're going to be able to reap millions in in uh, sales. Yeah. The other thing I like to say is not all. It's not that the best product wins. Okay, it's the best marketing wins. Mm, very true. That's yeah. That's why we're seeing in the marketplace stores becoming more. Um, homogenous. You're not seeing, you might see local products for a while and then you can't find them again. They just couldn't make it. They didn't have the money to put into it. I'm curious about that. And we can touch on that. Like, so for example, you said that when you look to work with someone, they've got to have the money to be able to get all these pieces together. So from the food science aspect, the branding, the marketing, the PR, dealing with the distributors and the margins. So if someone say they wanted, they're launching a product and they wanted to at least get it into national retailers across the US, can you give us a ball and maybe work with you as well? With yourself. So can you give us a ballpark figure of roughly the kind of figures we're talking about that they would need, I'd say a minimum, to to get that going? It's a little hard because the more unique the product, um, the sometimes the, the less money you would need. But if you're really savvy with absolutely everything and if you get ads at a discount and, you know, have yeah. ways, you know, to uh, find top bloggers at once, not one at a time, but at once and really launch something. So it's hard to say, but... um it depends on the product. It depends on the categories. Some categories are harder than others. Um, I can't really give ballpark. You know, once somebody talks to a consultant like me or one of my colleagues, we can kind of give them a feel for it, you know. But cool. Are we talking sort of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, just a kind of rough sort of guide so that, you know, I, people are I starting up there? Yeah, I wouldn't start anything these days without at least a million to a million and a half dollars for a couple of years. And that's, right. and that's really, but that's a national brand, North America, totally North America. And yeah. I would say that that's being very, very, very smart with the money. Okay. Not just, okay. you know, not just thinking you need a broker and then you get the first broker that comes your way. And, you know, I mean, you really need the inside especially in the natural and organic industry. But I will say this, 
that industry is still the most recession-proof, and that's why people are trying to get into that industry. Oh, okay. Why, do, why is that? Because people are looking for health. They're looking more and more for, for to be vibrant for as long as possible. Got and it. there aren't slotting fees per se, not per se. There are fees at the distributors. There are fees, but they're, they're different kinds of costs. They're not just a slotting fee, like in a grocery store or a, or a drugstore, you know. Okay. But the demand, the demand can make, you want to create a demand so, so people are coming to you also. Yes. So yes. that you're not the one chasing. If you're the one chasing, then it's going to be harder to strike a good deal with, with large chains. So in that case, would you getting media coverage and, you know, good social media following and everything, would that be a bonus when, uh, like to get on the radar of distributors or retailers? Yes. Now, there's a, there's a little, uh, well, I think it's a little known, but the distributors in, in North America aren't just going to pick you up because you contact them and it's a nice product. What they're looking for is stores that have, you've already gotten under your belt and they're looking for, um, you know, your sales. They're not just going to pick up something because they think it's neat. So they're not going to pick it up when it's brand new. You've already got to have a sales track record that you've kind it's of initiated yourself. Sales, yeah, sales track record. And also that you have a definite plan of how you're telling them how you're supporting sales. So if you can say, this is where we're advertising, this is our social media arm, this is what we're doing, we're poised to do this and that, then you really have something to talk about with them. Right. Right. Now, one of the things I wanted to touch on with retail brands, and you, you just mentioned it there, I think, when you said sometimes you'll see a local brand there and then it disappears because they haven't, you know, had the money to make it. But also, now, I don't know if this happens in the US, but I know here in Australia, for example, some of the, like, one of the big supermarkets, they'll take a particular brand um, and, you know, you go in and people buy it and it's great. Mm. And then suddenly it's not there anymore. It's not because the brand has gone under. It's because the um, either the supermarket has squeezed them so much they can't afford to be on the shelves or what they found, which seems a bit naughty to me, but you might have a different view, they actually create their own brand So it, and, and they put their own brand on it. It's basically the same product. It's cheaper, usually lesser, more inferior quality. And so they kind of, you know, they, they, they almost like use these local brands to see how successful they are. And if they're successful, they kind of replicate them, which I don't know, it seems to me as a consumer, to be a bit unfair, but what's your take on that? And is that a thing in, in North America? It does happen, but it only happens if something's um, really got a really has a huge demand. But there's a couple of facets of this. One is that they'll go create it for themselves at a lesser, um, ex, you know, a lesser um, quality. Or that regional person or that person saw that the, the market was really in private label. But that's uh -huh. why I go back to, to do a Me Too product is going to make you more susceptible to that kind of thing. 
Okay. The more you have a patent pending process or using things in very, very, very proprietary ways, that makes a large chain or a large conglomerate interested in you. And then they may purchase your patent, purchase your proprietary information, or have you make it for them. And then, is that the private labeling? Mm-hmm, that's private labeling. Oh, this is private labeling. I see. See, okay. and, and just imagine this. You're struggling along for a few years, and you don't really have enough money for marketing and PR and advertising and everything else. And somebody comes to you and says, you know, you have something that's proprietary. We want to buy a private label. And you do the numbers, and you see that if you suddenly the um, the demand is huge. You're making the money you always dreamed of making. You have your product out there, even though it may be a little less of a product than you had initially developed. But why wouldn't you do that without all the headache of day-to-day marketing and, I mean, all the things, complaints mm. and chargebacks and, you know, missing product and product that got thought out and, you know. So, <laughs> so the like, brand with private with private labeling, then so it would be whoever buys that product, it then becomes their brands. They basically buy. Is it, is it like they're buying? So they're not actually buying your business, though, are they? They're no. just buying the rights to use well, and brand under your name. It it depends. It depends on the situation, but most of the time they're just buying that proprietary um, method or the like thing a is, But if it's something so simple they can make, they just say, "Sure, that was a great idea." Let's make it. That's why That's why I say it's very important to have something proprietary and something unique. Otherwise, mm. all you're doing is being the R&D department for some large thing. <laughs> yeah. No, and you've taken point. on all the investment and you've taken all the trial and error. Got it, got it. So private label is, is potentially something that people could consider and they may not have considered because a lot of big and business owners certainly the ones that I speak to you know they want to get their product and their brand out there but this is actually you know potentially a way of getting out there like you say without all the stress and the the headache right right mm, that's interesting no, that's of great running, of running your whole business uh, but you know it just depends on the product and it depends on if there's something that a chain or a larger company would actually need from you Otherwise, if it's another jelly or jam, they don't need you. Yeah. That was a good idea. Thank you very much. And we'll go ahead and do that. (sighs) Right, right. Yeah. Cool. Now, this is great. This is really good stuff, actually. This is so valuable. It may be a little too much reality, but... Um, I, I think I think I, people need it, you know. I, I, you know, I know that you're very genuine, and like you say, you know, you really want to help companies. You don't just want to kind of take their money and give them hope, and then it all goes pear shaped. You know, you, oh, you've got no. to be that person who's yeah, giving that, wanting to still inspire people, and so you know, for them to follow their dreams, obviously, but 
to yeah have this reality check and it may be that perhaps you know launching nationally or whatever, or launching on such a big scale isn't for them and they may want to you know start small and, and see how they go but I think this is really useful for people who think no nope, I really do I want to take that next level or I want to you know get my product nationally I think it's really great to have someone with your caliber and your experience to generously share these insights so this is fantastic can we talk a little bit about trading terms because I know I interviewed um, Kale Druin who has a company here it's called Plant Based Foods which is a distributor I think they're now renamed to Revolution foods and he was saying that's one of the areas where um where vegan food business owners um kind of fall down a little bit because of the whole trading terms um and you know that you've got to have a certain cash flow coming until you eventually get paid by the the retailer can you talk a little bit about how that works in the u.s yes there's a couple of aspects to it one is you need enough um margin built in um I didn't say something a while ago. Retailers generally don't like to buy direct. It's not cost-effective for them. So it's hard to sell direct to stores. Okay. Okay, so it's easier to sell to a distributor. And then again, you need those margins. So even if you think you're never going to sell to a distributor, you need to build that in in case it happens, in case... in case you see that you want to go to a distributor. So most, a lot of companies don't price their product correctly from the beginning. And if you don't and you try to change your price later, it's it's very difficult. Yeah, you could, especially if you have to put it up. Yeah, yeah. Even if you are fortunate enough to have a product that retailers want to buy direct, what will happen is that the good thing to do is to say, okay, first order must be paid in advance. That's great. But then they're going to want terms. And if you have 30-day terms, you may not get paid in 30 days. You may get paid in 60 days or longer. If you do not have enough cushion for that, then you may not be able to make the next batch of product. Uh, yeah. let's, let's say... The money didn't come in on time too many places, but you're out of product. So what happens to people is they get into a catch-22, and so they need the money to contract manufacture product, but they didn't have the cushion for it. And so then they're out of stock, and stores don't wait for people who are out of stock too long. Every half-inch of a store is accounted for any good store, any store that's profitable, accounts for every inch. So they can move over the grocery category to the pet food category. In other words, they're going to get things in there that have good margins and that are easy to deal with, people, you know, companies that are easy to deal with and, and that have created a huge demand. So yeah. the customers are coming in for it. They see it somewhere else. Being on the shelf doesn't mean that you're going to sell it. In North America, people are busy. They're not wandering down the aisles all day. Yeah. And so you need enough cushion to be able to make that next batch and not be out of stock. Out of stock can really, really hurt. Yeah. Especially companies that are going direct. 
Got it. Got it. No, thank you for sharing. I think that's really important. When you talked about when you talk about distributors, one person I interviewed um, said that they had a few issues with distributors because, and I think you might have even I don't know if it was no, it was somebody else that mentioned you may have some anecdotes here, but they said that um, they some distributors don't represent their products as well because they've got so many. You know, they're representing so many brands. They don't really know the individual products well enough, like as well as you, the business owner, and therefore you could be represented badly in the market. What's your take on that? Well, that's a really good question because it's for somebody trying to sell into the U.S., it's very different than the European model or models in other countries. Here, distributors are a medium to get your product to stores. They are not a sales staff. In many other countries, the distributor is more like a partnership where they're going to promote your product. Here, you have to market your product yourself. The distributor is the vehicle to get you to the store. They're not a marketing department. Does this, does the distributor have some neat things that will get your product visible to retailers? Definitely. They'll have, um, they'll partner with stores for in-store flyers. They'll, they have their own catalogs. You can have, uh, ads in catalogs. It's imperative that you do promos at least three to four times a year. Um, in-store all- promos, do you mean? What's that? In-store promos, do you mean? I mean uh, promos to distributors where they buy um, at a discount and pass that on to the retailers. It's oh, okay. The retailers. Got it. Where there's like a special. That's if you go in the store and it's like the product is cheaper than it normally would be, like a special. Correct. Got and it. so um, here, distributors are not marketing companies. They're simply warehouses and vehicles to get your product into the store. And that's Mm -hmm. where uh, it's, you know, it's different than um, many other countries where, you know, you're getting a distributor who's going to partner with you and the sales staff's going to talk about that product. These distributors do have sales staffs, but those sales staffs are selling the products that have the biggest volume. So Mm -hmm. they're talking about those products. Now, that's where the broker comes in. If you have a broker who has a very good relationship with stores, that's what you want. And the broker saying so is not the same as you finding out, you know, uh, what the broker reputation really is from both ends, the retailer and the distributor. And weighing that with the cost of a broker, either a national Mm. broker or a regional broker, and what you can afford, that's where the broker comes in. The broker is your sales staff. And for small companies, you need brokers. You don't need to hire one person in a region because that person's never going to be able to cover the whole region. You know, it's, it's large here. Everything's, you know, spread out. Got it. So small business owner, uh, I mean, it's better to hire the broker who will then handle and deal with the distributor and the retailer on your behalf. Right, but choosing the right broker and managing that broker can be very difficult. Right. And then, again, the broker will have lines that are larger than yours initially. And so it's a matter of the relationship 
and um, proving to the broker that you're supporting them and the stores by marketing and advertising and social media and demos and all those things. And that's where, you know, money really can can uh, filter out through brokers. Yeah, got it. It's good to know about all these these costs. And like you say, um, and we touched on this earlier about pricing the product accordingly. And obviously, and one of the, the major things, and I know a lot of the food produ- vegan food producers that I, I speak to and interview say is that because it's vegan, because it's organic, because it's sustainable, in other words, because it's ethical, and you know, they want to tick all those boxes, because you know, they're mission driven entrepreneurs, they want to produce these ethic, you know, products as ethically as possible. That means they have to price the product higher. Um, and that can be quite tricky, both in terms of you know dealing with retailers who might not want to take it on if it's too expensive and also with customers um, who go oh well that's really expensive can you talk a little bit about how vegan business owners can overcome that or deal with that challenge well again having something proprietary or patented uh, gives it a lot of value added along with organic Um, creating the demand um, there, there demand. There is demand for product that is sometimes more expensive. It's just a matter of how it's branded and how it's presented as a much more higher valued product. So it is possible, but you really have to do some heavy market research into not only things that would be your direct competition, but indirect competition. Hmm. And see where, again, once you do this and you find that you can't make the product at an SRP less than, let's just throw a number out, $8, and everybody else's product is 5 maybe you shouldn't do it. And you go on to your next dream. And everybody's dreams are attainable when you have the dream that is right for you. So instead of trying to fit into the box, um, it's more fitting into a paradigm than it is trying to, just because you want to do it, you're so far outside the, the norm that you fail. It, it takes some, it, it really is to be an entrepreneur of any type the ones that are most successful are the ones that are not that are more honest with themselves. So let's say you have a dream for a vegan energy bar. The truth is is that the energy bar category is flooded. Yeah. Flooded. So what so if you have a take on an energy bar or a meal bar, meal replacement bar that nobody else has then you want to brand it and become the leader in that as fast as possible if you don't have anything that's very proprietary about it. Because somebody with more money and a better marketing team will just overtake you. And I'm not saying this to scare people. I'm saying that maybe that bar might have been your dream, but go deeper and find something that's more viable. And then you've you've created a, uh, you've manifested something that is in reality that is not only attainable, 
but is, um, you know, makes the world, world uh, you know, better, a better place. Got it. Yeah, got it. That's just fantastic. Can we talk a little bit about the use of the word vegan? Because you've got such a, a wide experience in the, you know, the natural foods and natural products market. Um, so in terms of the word vegan, in the past couple of years, it's sort of exploded. And, you know, there's been positive media coverage, more companies are using it. I went to a, a trade show uh, here in Sydney uh, earlier this year, and there were so many products that were using the word vegan, uh, even though the owners weren't necessarily vegan, but they were not afraid to use it. So can you talk a little bit about the use of the word in a vegan business owner's branding or marketing? And I know it's different. From, I ask everyone this question. I know it's, it depends on the business. Just curious to get, to get your take with your sort of broad experience in the field. What are your thoughts on how much or often or prominent the use of the word vegan should be on a company's branding or marketing material? Well, as many people know, there are um, new um, trade associations that are offering for products to be certified vegan. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't always think that's necessary. Most vegans and vegetarians know by the ingredients that something is vegan or not, or vegetarian or not, mm -hmm. because they know what they're looking for. So I personally, having started out you know, early, early in the natural products industry, you know, when it was just burgeoning, um, I'm not sensitive to the words. I don't mind that something says vegan on it as a marketing tool. It's okay with me. I'm not sensitive to, oh, they shouldn't use vegan uh, just to market something. But I mean, you can't you can't really get into a store with something marked vegan and then it's not vegan. Yeah, I mean stores are savvy. You know they would never. In other words, that's there's no danger of that. Okay. Does that make sense? So if something's marked vegan here, then yeah. it's definitely dairy free and animal free. Right. Right. So the retailer checks that, or it's assumed, or oh, they more than checks that, and they uh, would a, a company wouldn't get anywhere at all. Uh, they would they would get nowhere if there was dairy in the product or dairy derivative, and it was called vegan. It was uh, marketed as vegan. Vegans know they're vegan. Vegetarians know they're vegetarians. People mm -hmm. who are flexarians. Uh, know those two things also pretty well. In America, the general public is pretty educated now uh, because mm. because the mainstream uh, companies have jumped on the bandwagon. Yes, that's what I was wondering. It's like now it seems to be coming like either vegan or plant based. You know, they they seem to be kind of acceptable and almost like I say, I was blown away by the amount of of companies that you know whose products were using the word vegan. Uh, whereas years ago, as you know, you know what I mean, they they would be terrified to use it. And I know even some vegan companies who have said, you know, years who have been around for a while, they years ago they just wouldn't use the term uh, or use it very sparingly. Whereas now, you know, they're much more comfortable using it. So I, I guess what we're saying is that sector, the whole kind of natural food sector, is a bit more open to vegan and plant-based. Would that be fair to say? 
Well, I don't think it's just open. I think it's growing by huge amounts, especially yeah. flex, flexarians. So it's it's all centered around health and more and more knowledge about health mm-hmm. and um, more and more knowledge about processed foods. But again, mm-hmm. it, it comes right back to this thing where me and people like me in 1978 thought that we'd be walking into a beautiful, you know, natural food chains a year later and they would be <laughs> like they are today. <laughs> you know, we're talking about 35, 38, 40 years. Yeah. So, um, yes, the term's used for marketing. It's also used as a good descriptive. And it doesn't have the uh, same connotation. You know, the culture's changing. There's a lot more interest in traditional foods and that kind of thing. That's taken a long time to come to this place. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Got it. No, this is excellent. So I think probably a final question, or less, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it open to you in case there's anything else you want to add. But what would you say then? Because at, at the moment, when you've talked about you know having a proprietary you know ingredients or a proprietary system, so what kind of areas or what types of say natural uh, plant based food products are the kind of most ripe for growth at the moment in your experience? So if someone's listening and they think, yeah, you know, I would like to get into this, I'd like to create something, you know, what would be a good area, do you think, for them to focus on? Would it be vegan cheese or, you know, a, a dairy-free milk? Or what, what's your take on that, if you have any thoughts? The milk and um, milk alternative area is very crowded right now um, in in North America. I mean, there's a lot of new companies. Um, there's no shortage of, of that kind of thing. Okay. And yet, if somebody had a proprietary idea, m- might be good. Because there's so much competition, the marketing would have to be very, very, very hip and very, very compelling. So you need a twist if you're not going to just do a Me Too product. Mm-hmm. Uh, vegan dairy, it's not as crowded. Uh, and there's some products that are not that much like cheese. But you see, there's a brain-body connection for all of this. I just spoke to a consumer. She was, she's was, she been a vegetarian and vegan, vegetarian a very long time, vegan maybe 10 years. It was interesting to talk to her. Because as an aside, as we're just talking about something, she said, you know, we all know we're not going to get the same thing. And anybody who's been a vegan or a vegetarian for a while knows that it's not the same thing. So we're not expecting that. And then I said, you know, it's more of a brain-body connection. And she totally got that. She says, yeah, it's a brain-body connection. So a mouthfeel of a product um, my, my uh, food scientist friend just said, you know, a lot of vegans and vegetarians are starving for fat. Their body is actually starving for fat. So they're going to go for a dairy-free cheese that has a little more oil in it, a little more fat in it, because the mm-hmm. body can't be satisfied without certain components. Not all vegans and vegetarians or consumers in general know the science behind that or the nutrition behind that. 
but they know what feels better, what mm-hmm. what they want to eat. So you're going to want to look at a category and see what might be missing as a component in your competitors as far as the satisfaction level. And that satisfaction level can be drilled down to food science. Got it. Got it. Right. Just I know like I went interesting, in a big circle there. But <laughs> no, no, that's good. It's good. It's good to know. And I guess that's why it's kind of interesting watching, say, companies like Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods, which are, you know, aiming to replicate, you know, virtually the taste, the texture, uh, everything around, uh, you know, the traditional burger. So it's really kind of interesting to see how, how they develop. Um, uh, it's, yeah, it's interesting and exciting times. But Susan, you've shared so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? I know I've asked you quite a few questions and you've shared some amazing golden information for which I'm very grateful and I know our listeners will. Is there any final comments or anything else you'd like to add? I think what I'd like to say is co- consultants like me and, and my colleagues, after they've been in the uh, industry for years and years, I think we become more um, sensitive to what people are tackling. And I think more and more consultants realize that just one or two little ideas can, you know, throw somebody into a whole other tangent that may not be the best for them. And so... I think we've become very sensitive to the fact, and, and it's why I've had the tone in this conversation. The the tone, or the information really, is not to discourage someone, but it's better if you have all the realities. It's just like playing cards. Some people, well, it's it's how people deal with life. And I have to say that being an entrepreneur is a is a microcosm of life. Okay, so there are people who like to have all the cards on the table and know what they're getting into so that they can have the best opportunity of being successful. And there are types of people that work better not knowing everything because it's too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I would have to say, and I moved from one type of person, being one type of person to the other. If I could say one thing to entrepreneurs is try to move into the direction of having all the cards on the table before you start or wherever you are in your business because then you can be successful. As scary as that is because you're afraid of the card, don't be afraid of the card because that card could bring you into the next iteration of your product or it could tell you, gee, you know what? I need to switch categories and do this while I'm ahead or, oh my gosh, I'm on the right track. Just be brave and look at every single thing with all your market intelligence, all your market research, all the wise people you can find, and then you're going to have a better time of succeeding. Wow, what a way to end. This has been a cracker of an interview. I'm so happy. Thank you so much, Susan. (laughs) You are really amazing. This is so, so wonderful. It's so generous of you to to give up your time and and all this expertise to, to help people. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you. Anytime. So that was Susan Cuscaden. 
If you're interested in working with Susan, you can contact her via email at cascaden at indra.com. She's requested that you use my name, Katrina Fox, as the subject line to make sure your email isn't mistaken for spam, or by phone on 303-329-8476. And that information is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 51. Now for our Vegan Business News Roundup. Vegan businesses are continuing to win awards. This week, Australia's first vegan pub won the award for Best New Pub in Sydney for 2016 in Online Dining Guide Concrete Playgrounds People's Choice category. The Green Lion opened just three months ago in September in the inner city suburb of Roselle and it received a ton of local, national and international media coverage due to it being the first pub of its kind to provide an all-vegan food and drinks menu. The opening night, which I attended, was packed and while I haven't been back yet, I've heard it's continued to be a busy and popular destination for both vegans and non-vegans. Also winning the popular vote is Herbivorous Butcher. USA Today readers voted the country's first vegan butcher shop number one in the media outlet's top 10 makers of food and drinks. It's so great to see vegan businesses winning awards. There's been quite a few lately, as you'll know if you're a regular listener of this podcast. Mono Bar and Cafe in Glasgow, Scotland and Smith & Daughters Restaurant in Melbourne, Australia were also crowned the best. These awards are so well deserved as these businesses are making vegan food that's appealing to non-vegan customers and doing a fantastic job of shifting people's perspectives on plant-based eating. Now, Herbivorous may be the first vegan butcher shop in the US, but others are hot on its heels. Monk's Meats in Brooklyn, New York, is set to open a dedicated store in spring 2017 after raising $50,000 in crowdfunding, reports Seeker. The company has been delivering its Satan-based offerings to homes and offices in all five New York boroughs since 2010. The new butcher shop will continue to use seitan as the main replacement for animal protein and it'll also feature a deli case, a butcher's block and other equipment to give it the look and feel of a traditional delicatessen. So Brooklyn is becoming a bit of a vegan paradise. It already has the dedicated vegan cheese shop Riverdale. Now with the vegan butcher shop on the horizon, it's going to be very easy for New Yorkers to take animals and their secretions off their plates. Love it. Vegan shoe designer Rebecca Mink has teamed up with People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals to create a stylish flat shoe that's an alternative to those made from ostrich skin, reports the LA Times. The pointy ballet flat shoe is co-branded inside with the Peter and Mink Shoes logo and retails at $175 with 20% of profits from each sale benefiting Peter. The shoes are made to order and are currently available for pre-order until the 8th of January. Mink uses the same Italian shoemakers as Christian Louboutin, Chanel, Jimmy Choo and Dolce & Gabbana. She specialises in custom-made shoes made from animal-free materials and her clients include Miley Cyrus. 
I love this collaboration. It's a win for everyone. The non-profit Peter benefits, the business gets extra publicity and exposure to Peter's large membership, and customers get cool shoes. I also really like Rebecca's shoes as she makes such original and fabulous creations, including glittery ones, which of course I love. And I love that she shows that you can have high quality, high fashion footwear without the use of animal skins. Finally, this is a pretty cool news story to end the year on. The podcast is going on hiatus for two weeks over the Christmas break, returning 7th of January 2017. Chilean startup Notco is using artificial intelligence to replicate popular animal-based foods such as mayonnaise using plants, reports Reuters. Notco uses software called Giuseppe which breaks down foods into their basic molecular compositions and then using machine-based learning chooses vegetables to combine to imitate that structure while also working with people to figure out what tastes good. One of the company's products, Not Mayo, is a mayonnaise with a taste and texture very similar to regular mayo, but using ingredients such as basil, peas, potatoes and canola oil instead of eggs. The one-year-old company has already signed deals to sell its Not Mayo product in supermarkets in Chile and is now looking to enter the US market. According to Reuters, it's spoken to multinationals including Hershey, Coca-Cola and Mars about creating new versions of chocolate and soda. Notco Chief Executive Marias Muchnik said, We want to promote these products as mainstream. It will only have an impact if meat eaters who don't care about sustainability buy them. And that's a really good point, and Muchnik added that they can be retailed at the same price as the non-vegan versions. And this is really important. As I've said before, we have to make vegan products accessible to all. So this is a promising new development. And I love that technology can be used for good. And in fact, Notco considers itself a tech company, not a food company. Now, I've always liked those food and drink replicators they have on Star Trek Next Generation, Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Yes, I'm a little bit of a Trekkie. (laughs) Where you say what you want and it just materialises in front of you. You know, whatever food or drink that you want, you just say what it is and it just appears. Now, maybe we're not so far off that now. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm laughing, but if you said 20 or even 10 years ago that artificial intelligence would be used to create vegan foods that are good for animals, people and the planet, it would seem so far-fetched. But here we are. So all in all, 2016 has been a great year in terms of vegan and plant-based businesses, and it looks as if the future will continue to be rosy in that regard. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more resources, including details of my media and PR consultations, copywriting, editing and proofreading services to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business, 
and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now. Yeah.